This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 205. Today we speak with Dr. Scott Oliphant about the doctrine of God. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 205. My name is Camden Busey. I'm back here at Westminster Theological Seminary in our studio. Very pleased to welcome uh, back to the program Jared Oliphant, who is Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Jared. It's good to have you in studio. Thanks, Camden. Good to be back here. Yeah, physically, not, physically. Not via Skype. Right. It's nice to have you in person. We get you know better audio quality and also yeah. it's just better interaction. Yeah. And so we're very pleased. Uh, you're here for the preaching conference, which is going on now. That's right. And uh, it's just great to have you here all the way from North Carolina, back in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Uh, we also have with us Jonathan Brack, who is Director of Admissions here at Westminster. It's great to have you back, Jonathan. It's been a little while on, on Christ the Center. We've been mi- missing our uh, Brack fix here. <laughs> Brack fix. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Camden. Sure, it's good to have you. And, of course, we're very pleased to welcome uh, our special guest back to the program, Dr. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology here at Westminster as well. Thanks for coming back to the program, Dr. Oliphant. It's good to have you again. Camden, you told me this was the 200th episode. I'm not sure I want to do 205. 205? Yeah. We'll do yeah. 300, right? Yeah, we can have you back for 250, 300, right. whatever. Okay, all right. We'll pencil, it, you pencil it in. Yeah, I'll pencil yeah. it in. Dr. Oliphant, is, uh, he recently came out with uh, he's as co-editor of Christian Apologetics Past and Present Volume 2, along with Dr. William Edgar, who's a professor here at Westminster as well. And uh, we're going to be speaking today about the upcoming book, God With Us, Divine Condescension and the Attributes of God from Crossway. Uh, And you can find his full Doctrine of God class, which many of these themes and the the foundations of of this book are going to be found on Westminster's iTunes U page. You can go there for free. Just open up iTunes and and, uh, do a search or go to the iTunes U and uh, pull up Doctrine of God, Dr. Oliphant, etc. You'll find it. You can download it entirely for free. A fantastic resource there. Uh, before we get uh, started, do we have anything uh, pressing that needs to be mentioned? No, not on Nothing my on my radar. Yeah, conference season is over, and finally, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the listeners are going to be listening to some more conferences uh, as as recordings come out. That's but right. uh, it's nice just to uh, to settle down and get back into the regular swing of things. And, of course, uh, today to be speaking about Doctrine of God. But before we do that, I do need to mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. You can visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate to help and support our efforts here today. Uh, Reform Forum is a 501c3 nonprofit organization now, and we rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us to continue to produce and distribute all these programs free of charge. We thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Reform Forum in this program, Christ the center. All right, gentlemen, here we go. Uh, Doctrine of God. I've got a few questions, uh, some things we want to hit up and uh, things we want to address as we approach this difficult subject, but yet a very important one. I mean, we we start our theology, we could start it with the doctrine of Scripture, uh, because that tells us about God. We could start it with doctrine of God, because God is who he is and the foundation of all that exists, and it is his word that is scripture, so it's always been a traditional um, methodological point where exactly you start, because you have to start with something. Uh, But today we're going to be speaking about doctrine of God, because it is really the foundation uh, for how, uh, for everything else, who God is, how could could we get to something any more important than that? Uh, Dr. Alfin, one thing that you speak about, um, and and you're very... uh, helpful at explaining in your Doctrine of God class is the different attributes of God. Some people will call them properties. Um, is is God's greatness, uh, for instance, just as one example of a property, uh, is that a proper attribute in the way that we speak of his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth? We talk about God being great. What, where would we fit that into, the whole mix of of God's properties. Yeah, well, I think it's a way to describe God's own being when we talk about um, God as being perfect, that is, lacking in nothing, 
uh, and independent. I think that's a way to understand God's own uh, greatness. Another way of of saying that. Um, I don't think it. I don't think it's one of those things that we want to speak of as an attribute. If you use property in a certain generic way, you can say it that way. But um, it it really refers, I think, more specifically to God's aseity, his uh, his independence, uh, the fact that He is lacking in nothing, mm-hmm. uh, and that when we talk about perfect being theology. That's not so much a moral characteristic as it is um, uh, helping us understand the fact that he does not lack anything, nor does he need anything, essentially. Mm. Uh, so in that sense, he is the greatest possible being that could be. Now, given that, that God is independent, he's say, uh, he's of himself, and he doesn't need anything outside of himself. Of course, it's one of the great mysteries of of. Christianity, why God decided to create and, and why he communes with us. Um, could you parse that out further and explain really what the relationship of of God's being is to soteriology, for instance? Well, I think, yeah, that as you say, get, given the mystery that he determined to create, mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, I don't think we have a lot of information in Scripture about that determination. It's, it's a determination that he freely made. It's not something that had to happen. When he determines to create, then, he does that on the basis of a plan, and that plan takes place in eternity. We call it the covenant of redemption, the pact yeah. of salutis. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, covenant to relate themselves to the world in a particular way. Um, and to carry out their plan, which is um, is uh, exhaustive in terms of the tales of creation and into eternity uh, future. So God's own character then is what provides the ground and foundation for everything that happens in history and certainly has its focus and locus after the fall in, in the salvation that God grants to his own people. And what, what type of salvation is that? I mean, we're coming up on Reformation Day here. Uh, and October 31st, traditionally, um, are all salvation plans equal? And, and how does our doctrine of God come to bear upon a Reformed soteriology in particular? Well, I think one of the distinctives about uh, our, our theology, about Reformed theology, is that we understand God to be the initiator and the sovereign um, of, of salvation from beginning to end. Um, in any other construal, and well, if you th- if you think about it historically, you've got two Christian options: a Reformed option or an Arminian option, mm-hmm. and then the Pelagian option is not Christian. It's like liberalism; it's another religion, so you don't have anything Christian there. But in the in the in a Christian context, Reformed or Arminian, in an Arminian situation, there there's a, a God giving up His sovereignty, laying it aside for the sake of our supposed freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in that sense, you, you diminish God's character in order to define salvation according to our own freedom. And in a Reformed context, we've held, and this goes before the Reformation, but we've held that God is, uh, because he is Asse, he is sovereign. And in that sense, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates in any way, shape, or form that he could give up anything that he is essentially. God cannot cease to be God. Mm-hmm. So what he is essentially is what he must be, mm. and he must be because he is that. Yeah. Is it important to maintain that um, uh, although the pactum salutis is not um, necessary, it is before and outside of time? Mm-hmm. And why, that, why might that, that be? Because Scripture says that. <laughs> Before the foundation of the world, God yeah. planned what would take place. It didn't, it, it's, it's not in the beginning God created and covenanted then. It's before the foundation of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determined the reality of creation and the progress and process of creation exhaustively in every detail. Um, and that then provides the foundation for any kind of covenant relationship that takes place with respect to God and creation is the, is the commitment that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made in eternity um, that then produces, if I could put it that way, produces time and, and history and everything else that we experience. Mm-hmm. Work that out. Um, going back to the subject of soteriology, I guess we're still on the subject, of course, talking about the, the Pactum Salutis, the covenant of redemption. You mentioned a Pelagian view. 
Um, what about a semi-Pelagian view? Could a, could a semi-Pelagian soteriology boast of a truly great God, a truly assay God, or is a really full-blown Reformed doctrine of soteriology demand? It's uh, only uh, in Reformed theology mm-hmm. that, you, that, that God gets his, his scriptural due. It, it really is. Um, and, and everyone recognizes, even the Arminians who disagree, recognize that in a Reformed context, God is, he, to put it sort of crassly, he has more attributes in a Reformed con- context than he mm-hmm. does in Arminian context. And that's what, that what, that's what bugs Arminian th- theologians, mm-hmm. because those attributes then um, uh, the, produce a good bit of mystery that you don't have in the Arminian Situation, and I think that's why Arminianism is initially more appealing to many because mystery is not there, and so we can figure it out. Mm. You know, um, there's been this sort of idea out there that Calvin put God in a box, but when you look at it theologically, it's Arminian theology that puts God in a box. It's a box they can contain and understand, and and in that sense, then uh, the, the notion of mystery really isn't as uh, intense, and I think intensely biblical as it is in Reformed thinking. Mm. So was it Kuiper who said it's not the the ghost of Pelagius we need to fear it's the ghost of semi Pelagius? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I a think good it was, point. Yeah and, yeah, and that's because semi Pelagianism is you know it has that uh, subtlety that allows it to be uh, Christian. Mm-hmm. That is that that is there's atonement and there's and God's justice is satisfied all of those things, but it it fudges when it it comes to the doctrine of God. I think Rank Roger Olson said in his book on Arminian theology that. All of this comes down to how we think about God. Absolutely. That's where the dividing line is. And I think that's basically true. Somebody else said, no, it, it comes down to how we think about man because of the notion of freedom. And I, I think it's kind of Arminian take on, on Calvin's view that to the extent you know God, you know yourself. And I think there's this huh. God-self situation happening in Arminian theology um, it's hard to say definitively which comes first, but I think what what has to come first when these guys are being honest, what has to come first is the is the uh, the assumption of uh, libertarian freedom. Yeah, which is definitely an issue. Um, you know, other other attributes we could talk about. We want to get into the love of God at some point, but to provide a context for this. Um, Behind all of this discussion in terms of God's relation to mankind, we have to understand how a transcendent God can come to relate to mankind in the first place. Uh, in, in a lot of the courses, especially the apologetics courses, we're forced to deal with the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Uh, he was such a significant figure in the history of philosophy, and many modern theologies, of course, uh, flow out of his thought and are, are just basically attempting to reconcile his basic ideas with different theological ideas they have. We think of Karl Barth is one, um, Schleiermacher, uh, another, Boltman, Karl Rahner, all these people in some way, shape, or form are just trying to reconcile Kant with what they understand to be scriptural teaching or their own ideas. How, as Reformed people, do we understand this Kantian divide? Not, not buying into Kant, but the idea that we have an absolutely transcendent God and we have an imminent creation um, how can a transcendent God relate to creation? What's a Reformed way to understand that? And why is that better than a modern theology approach? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. I think in, in, in virtually every other approach to God, it's always from the bottom up. In Kant, in, in, um, in philosophy and theology, it tends to be from the bottom up. We start here, and we think about X here, and then we project that as best we're able to, onto God's character, and that try to build ourselves up in that in that particular way. Now Kant, you know, wanted to say there's no way to do that. So so his there is un- no bridge. Yeah, there is no bridge. Yeah. But there had to be a noumenal because the noumenal provided some sort of as if qualifier for Kant in terms of his ethics and things like that. So even though you couldn't know anything about it, he was clear what you could know is that it had to be there because it was a kind of conditional. But in in a Reformed context, um, what what we've said, what I've tried to emphasize, at least in in my own teaching, is um, what Westminster Confession 7.1 says, that God voluntarily condescends. So that it's from the top down, not from the bottom up. And in his condescension, you know, if you think about what that means, uh, the the first thing the Confession says, 7.1, is the distance between uh, God and man is so great. Now, that distance is, is a metaphor, 
um, it because God is is uh, repletively present. There is no real distance in terms of inches or miles or anything like that. So it's a metaphor for I think what is an ontological distinction. That is that God is wholly other. I mean, some people just you know I've heard arguments that if God is wholly other, then we you know we, he can't talk to us or we'd never understand him, which is just not theologically correct. He is wholly other. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's immutable, etc. But then he determines to condescend, and he determines to do that freely. And, and that condescension is another metaphor, a spatial metaphor that's used. And the way that I've tried to understand it and articulate it is to say that what, what that really means is that God takes on characteristics now that he didn't have previously without in any way changing those characteristics that are his essentially. Um, and I think that's the best way to understand it for, for a number of reasons, but, but one of the reasons uh, is because if we don't see that in that way, then I think we, we are prone to err on one side or the other, mm-hmm. either that he takes on those characteristics and ceases to be who he mm-hmm. is right. uh, or what he was, which is the way, uh, for example, William Craig talks about God in, in, in eternity, time and eternity. He's, maybe he was eternal, but at the point of creation, he's not anymore. So he gives up his eternity, as if that's not an essential characteristic of his or something. That's one side. The other side is, and this has been the fault of, of some in a, in a reform context, is that you, you say that God's relationship to creation or what's happening relative to creation is simply metaphorical. Or, or you, try to, you try to speak about it in a way to make it less real. It seems like this is what's happening rather than this is what is actually happening. So I think, you know, as I, as I was um, uh, looking at that years ago and thinking about these issues, I didn't like either side of that. Um, I, I fully resonate and, and, and am in full agreement with the Reformed way of doing what, what we're doing here, that is thinking about God and understanding that he couldn't in any way give up essential uh, characteristics because of his nature, not because we restrict him. So I'm, I'm in agreement with that, but by the same token, I think we have to give more credibility than some have done, not all, but some have done historically, to the reality of God condescending to us and taking on characteristics that he wouldn't have had pre- uh, previously, that he didn't have without that free decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in, in, in my own mind, the quintessential example of that is, is in, in Jesus Christ himself. That's, yeah. that's the, the, uh, the culmination, the climax of God's condescension in, in, uh, in redemptive history. And if we look at that and begin to see what's going on there, then I think we can better understand what God has been doing from the, from the point of creation and in, into eternity future. This is what he determined to do. So I, I talk about that in terms of uh, properties, partly because there are some things God takes on which I wouldn't want to say is an attribute of his, but which are nevertheless characteristics of who he is by virtue of condescension. So there's a, there's a little bit more leeway in the notion of property, even though, as, as Muller says, there's no, there doesn't have to be a real hard and fast distinction between properties and attributes and characteristics. There hasn't been in, in Reformed thinking um, generally. Hmm. And in the reform scholastics, yeah, exactly, philosophers can make those, and that's okay if they want to. But in theology, we don't have to do that. I just think the notion of property gives us a little more uh, leeway on uh, describing what's going on in Scripture and thinking about that more carefully. All right, how how would you characterize God's love? Property, attribute, essential, covenantal. What, fit that in because we've been talking about soteriology, and of course, God has a love for His church, yeah, and saves them. So we see it on kind of both sides of the right. The um, you know I I think I'm pretty much in agreement with the standard reformed way of thinking about this, and that is that you have uh, if you want to talk about two basic categories of God's properties, you can talk about essential properties and personal properties. And normally, when we're talking about personal properties, now we're into the the life of God as it's as it's sort of generically uh, described in in reformed scholasticism and. and in terms of the life of God, we're talking now about the love of God. So the love of God is one of those things that reflects more on the person of God or on Father, Son, Holy Spirit than it does on the essence of God. Now, again, we're not, we're not separating anything. We're simply making distinctions relative to um, where those properties and attributes more naturally terminate. So in that sense, the love of God has to do with God who is personal as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and extends that love uh, to his creation when he determines to create. But even before creation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, there was love between the persons of 
the Trinity. So it's a, it's a, I, I think of it as a personal property in that sense. Mm. Um, you know, many, many of our Reformed scholastics distinguished uh, between the different ways that the Scriptures speak of the love of God. You've already alluded to many of these. Um, but since we know that the Scriptures do not teach that God loves all men savingly, mm-hmm. there's clearly different types of love. Do we need to define how the Scriptures speak of God's love in, in different categories then? Is that appropriate? I think it's appropriate. I think it's helpful. We were talking about this in class the other night um, because somebody was asking me the question, can't, can't you just approach a sinner and say, God loves you? Exactly. And I said, well, if you're going to use that terminology, you've got to be very careful. Um, I, I don't think it's the most judicious way to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to think about God's goodness over all creation and his, his, uh, his mercy over all and to all, and if you want to think of that about that in terms of love, then I think you can make certain qualifications. But it's certainly better, in my view, to say, as Paul does, the Lord has given you good gifts, life and breath and all things, and in that sense has cared for you, mm-hmm. even though you're, you're under his wrath. And, and, and then you can begin to, to see how love will distinguish our relationship to God uh, in, in a way that it won't do if you just kind of give it uh, generically. So I'm, I'm hesitant to do that. Mm. Another, another sticky one uh, uh, that, that comes up sometimes. In John 17, 23, uh, Jesus prayed that his Father would make his people know that he loves us as he loves his Son. Um, but how, how can the God the Father love the saints to the same degree that he, that he loves the infinitely existing Son of God, uh, or, or how does a covenantal condescension perhaps shed light on, or the incarnation perhaps shed light on that? Yeah, and I, and I think you know that the thing that you've discussed here on many occasions, and will continue to when we talk about our union with Christ, that mm-hmm. really is the answer to the the Father's love with respect to us. When He loves His Son, He loves us in His Son. Mm. And he loves us because of his son, and because we're united to him, the love that's extended to Christ is extended to us. Um, it, you know, you, you have these um, you know, these great passages in Scripture. I just think, you know, the other day of Hebrews two, where you know Jesus is saying it's put in the words of the, of Christ. You know, not ashamed to call us, you know, his children. Yeah. Or God is not ashamed to call us his children. We, are, you know, he's not ashamed of us, and he ought to be. Because he's not ashamed of his son, because of what his son has done. Right. So I think in in that sense, we uh, we understand the love of God communicated to us because of who we are in Christ. That's a very helpful way to think about it. At that point, um, we can shift gears a little more to be a little more specific about the upcoming book, God with Us. And I love that title. Um, and and one thing that you speak about often in class is uh, in the Doctrine of God class, you spend quite a bit of time about. Uh, speaking about Exodus three, we also we can consider the entire book. Uh, what's going on in Exodus? What is the significance of that title, the Exodus three passage, etc.? And how does it really provide a context for what we've already been speaking about today? Yeah, well, I have a story about titles that I won't um, <laughs> air here publicly, but it's uh, but just to say, it's always an adventure. It's always an adventure, and no publisher <laughs> has ever accepted my title completely. But this is as close as I've gotten. What what I what I would have preferred to have uh, the title be is uh, the way I sent it to him was God with an ellipsis and then with us, mm-hmm. so that we can see there's a distinction between God as God, God and Himself, and then God with us. Mm-hmm. But um, the people who do marketing things um, say you don't put an ellipsis in a title. People aren't going to like that. So I don't know anything about marketing. Um, so <laughs> it's it doesn't have the ellipsis in it, but. Um, the um, you know the the point of what I'm I'm trying to do in that um, is, is so multifaceted. There's an apologetic side to it. There's a theology proper side to it. There's a Christology side to it. Yeah. Um, and, and and all of that is it comes within the context, as I was saying, of my own personal dissatisfaction with the way um, many uh, in the history of the church have handled how we talk about God's relationship to creation. Mm-hmm. And I have some quotations in the book. Um, that, you know, there's, there's select quotations, but I could have used a, a, a number more that I have. Um, you know, I have one from Augustine, who, you know, I'm, I appreciate him very much. I have one from Turretin, who I appreciate. And, 
And um, you know what? So what I'm trying to say on, on my side of things, because I I align myself with Augustine in that way and with Turretin on my side of things, is that we not we have not been very good at handling what the Bible actually says about God oftentimes. And yeah. so, you know, in that sense, I'm saying to the Arminians, you know, you've got, a, you've got a certain point here that we do tend to sweep under the rug passages that make us a little uncomfortable, like God's relenting, um, or, you know, even God uh, moving from wrath to grace, you know, the way that that, that gets kind of fleshed out in terms of a, a person's own personal belief, as Paul Helm wants to say, Calvin is saying, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to debate that issue now, but if that's what Calvin is saying, I think that's that can't be. Um, it certainly, it it's I, I understand Helm's uh, desire to try to protect God's immutability. So he'd say there's no movement from wrath to grace, but a movement from our belief that we're under wrath to our belief that we're under grace. Mm. Now, that just can't be, because that would mean that Scripture is encouraging you to think something that is not the case. And doesn't that have uh, Christological implications, too, with yeah. Christ on the cross? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Huge, huge implications there. Theological implications are, are deep. Um, so there's, you know, so my own, um, my own anxiety over that um, caused me to begin to think about much of this as I, was, as I was taking on the Doctrine of God course here at the seminary. I mean, it goes back farther than that, but I had to think about it in earnest when I was taking that on at the seminary. And at the same time, when I was... Uh, beginning to prep for the Doctrine of God course here, I was in the middle of working on reasons for faith. And, mm-hmm. and because that is a more philosophical uh, book to try, to try to help Christians who are thinking about philosophy, I was, um, I was in the middle of, of uh, working through uh, essentialism and what essentialism means for a Christian, if anything at all. So these things kind of merge together. And um, as I began to, to think about this and, and to write about this, I guess I should say, frankly, um, n- nobody else was saying this, and there was nobody else I could read that was helping with this. And so I just, I just developed my own yeah. categories. And I say that, and I say that in my Doctrine of God class, I say, you know, much of what you've gotten so far that I've taught you in this class, this is basic traditional reform theology, what I'm about to give you isn't. This is this is my stuff, and so you're you're perfectly free to after you take your exam. You got to pass your exam, but if you take that, you can throw it in the trash. But but I, I do, exam doesn't always say I agree with this. That's right. Just, you just have to know what I'm saying. You don't have to agree with it. So it it all of that caused me um, as I was as I was looking at scripture and the way in which God interacts with creation. All that uh, caused me to begin to think about the the importance, the central focal importance of Confession seven one. And it was at that point when I used to I started telling people in my lectures, you must memorize this. You won't get out of the class without having to you've got to articulate this verbatim because it's so central to everything we think about who God is on the one hand, the difference, that distinction, that ontological difference, and the voluntary condescension. And when when he condescends then and you see this in Exodus 3, for example, as I go through it in class, you see it uh, illustrated in the burning bush where God in Exodus 3 announces himself as the covenant God. All right, those now he's taken on properties where he's committed to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and he, as he's saying there, to Moses, which means there's going to be real interaction taking place there on the horizontal level. But at the same time, when Moses asks for God's own name, meaning his character, who do you think you are? What, should, what will I tell Israel? Who is this that's going to release us? What's his character? That's where God can only give his character in terms of self-reference. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. Now, there, you know, there are commentators out there who say, oh, you can't, you know, this has nothing to do with metaphysics because Israel would never have thought in terms of Greek metaphysics. That's just naive. It would naive. never have thought in terms of things existing. Yeah, or things <laughs> existing absolutely and independently, mm-hmm. even though their whole history had been yeah. uh, with one like that, and even though they understand through natural revelation, this is who God is. So they they would have thought that way, and they did think that way. And when God says, I am who I am, he's giving Moses now his character as Ase. And so the, the bush, which is not burning, is an illustration of God who is independent. The fire doesn't need the bush uh, in order to burn. It exists in and of itself, and yet it is with the bush, both things happening. The announcement of God Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with you, but also Ase. So, the, so I see the burning bush as a sort of 
proleptic illustration of what's coming in the incarnation, where mm. you have, where you and and uh, Exodus three eight, I have come down to deliver. So it, there, everything is there in seed form that just sort of blossoms all the way through redemptive history, reaching its uh, climax in in Jesus Christ, who comes down and who is John eight, I am before Abraham was, I am, even while he takes on really and truly a human nature and gets tired and and weary and hungry and angry and emotional, and all these things happen while he remains infinite, eternal, and immutable. So I think once we understand then, and, and this, you know, this is a, this is, you know, I think we have to see a difference in the way that this, that theology proper has been handled. You can't, you can't, know God except through Christ. And we say, oh, amen, that's salvation. I'm not talking about soteriology. I'm talking about theology proper. You can't know God properly until you have some sort of proper understanding of the person of Jesus Christ and what the incarnation actually means as it's been confessed in the Catholic and Protestant tradition. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think in, in that sense, then, um, you can begin to see the the characteristics of God throughout redemptive history as real even though in 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 the reality of those, he never at any point ceases to be who he is. Um, so I think what you have from from the point of creation on mm. uh, to the incarnation is proleptic Christology moving through redemptive history, and it's always condescension by addition, right? Exactly, rather than emptying. There couldn't be a subtraction, and and in the Gnosis. book I I do yeah. a little bit with Philippians too. Um, exegetically, just to show you know that it's not that it's not kenosis. It couldn't be because Paul describes what what the uh, emptying is. Right. You know that he empties himself by taking on. So that's what it is. it's emptying by taking on, and in that Certainly. taking on, there's a veiling of his glory. But he doesn't cease to be fully God. Right. Exactly. That's a wonderful, wonderful way be. to put it. Um, yeah, just a question. It, methodologically, this is something that obviously I think it's been demonstrated in what we're talking about. It touches on the other loci, on the other um, you know topics in systematics, Doctrine of Man, Doctrine of Christ, um, Salvation, Soteriology. When you were looking at those um, assumptions, Doctrine of Scripture obviously as well, how did you prioritize just this as an entry point with all those other things either assumed or um, – you know, needed to be touched on, you know, how do you, how do you go into this topic with needing to assume those things, but also not being capable of, or not being capable, but not writing a whole book on just theology in general with all those different topics? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, part of it's already spelled out for you. When I, when I was, uh, when I was looking at teaching the, the doctrine of God, uh, one of the first things I did was get John Murray's notes. And, you know, how did Murray do it when he was here? So mm-hmm. I had his, his notes, you know, in front of me, typewritten. And so you, you kind of, you can, you, can, uh, you can begin to think about the, the locus of theology proper, recognizing that uh, prolegomena has already come before and more is coming afterwards. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I almost had to isolate it that way as, as its own, which we do, you know, in theology, isolate it as its own and presuppose certain things and then recognize other things are coming along. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there are implications for this all across the spectrum of, of all of those loci in terms of who we are, in terms of how we think about salvation. In Doctrine of God, it's standard um, – practice to get into predestination, election, those kinds of things. And you could do that under doctrine of salvation, but normally it's under doctrine of God because of the implications for how we think about um, election, and our confession lays it out that way as well as a kind of locus, I think, as, you know, a sort of sub-locus uh, to theology proper. So in that sense, I, it's, you know, it was, it was um, easy enough to stay with that, recognizing that there was some that came before and more that will come after. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as I've said before, I think it, it does have huge implications, for example, in, in doctrine of Scripture, just to use a you know, sort of fairly common now misunderstanding of the incarnational analogy. The reason there's a misunderstanding of the incarnational analogy relative to Scripture, that is Scripture is, is divine and human, and you sort of talk about that like you've got two hands there and you bring it together, is because that's how most people think about the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking in the, uh, about the incarnation the way the Reformed do, that you have the person of the Son of God, uh, ontologically who he is, um, I am who I am, independent, all of those essential attributes, that person then takes on, by virtue of a free decision, a human nature, which means the human nature is a contingency 
that the person is not. Now, he doesn't become another person. He's the same person now with a human nature, but now he's the person who is Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. You begin to think about that, and then if you transfer that to a doctrine of Scripture, which I I still maintain is not the best way to speak of it, although I'm aware of how it's been done historically. But I think the reason it's gotten confused now in the doctrine of Scripture is because people have been confused about it in Christology. Mm -hmm. But if you understand it properly in Christology, then you see that what is – you see the emphasis of Scripture itself, that all uh, Scripture is God-breathed, that there's an essential divinity to the Bible that uh, supersedes any of the humanity. Mm-hmm. doesn't negate the humanity. It doesn't say that it isn't there. It doesn't ignore it, but it supersedes it. And that's, and that's Scripture's own testimony to itself. Paul didn't say all Scripture is God and man-breathed. Right. And when you hear guys using incarnational analogies, Today, that's what it sounds like they're saying. Yeah, it is yeah. God and man. Or when you hear biblical studies, people say, oh, well, my job's to deal with the humanity of Scripture. Well, says who? Who defined that for you? Mm-hmm. And how do you do that relative to the fact that God is the author from beginning to end? I mean, there are ways to do it, but the mm-hmm. illustration I've used is, as the Reformed Scholastics said, that you know God used uh, men as instruments. So you have God writing and let's say he writes with a red big pen, fine point. Okay, then you can study whether it's a big pen or, or not, uh, or whether it's a fine point or medium or red or black, and that's part of what's going on. But what is what has to remain in place in a fundamental, foundational way is that it's God writing all the yeah. time. And I think the that's priority what, of the divine. The priority, yeah. the essential yeah. divinity is, what is, is what's been emphasized historically. That's gone now in most biblical mm-hmm. studies, and that's why we're having problems with the doctrine of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Well, and just a quick follow-up. Uh, um, this is the methodology is is so different from a, a speculative systematic theology. So it, a, a lot of what you see out there is you start with maybe a premise that says God is perfect or or something. Yeah. Then you work your way out from there, and that's that's the bedrock. But um, I, I think we're just illustrating that um, no, that's not the foundation. It, it's working from scripture out that you reach those, but it's because of what scripture says rather than yeah. that logic problem. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's a good point. See the. Um, um, when, when you read Muller's uh, Volume Three on Doctrine of God, he's very he's very clear that the scholastics recognized that there were huge metaphysical implications to what all of this meant in terms of oh, Doctrine of God. You, you cannot avoid that. Um, so you don't want to go the direction of saying you know it's all only historical and it's on that certain plane. Um, and and you do, but on the other hand people uh, today tend to want to avoid anything that is that that smacks of philosophy oftentimes is thought to be only speculative. And some would even say, Muller addresses it, some would even say Calvin had no time for talking about the essence of God because it was all speculation, all this. Mm-hmm. Muller says, well, of course he talked about it. He presupposed <laughs> it. You can see it in his institutes. Um, but it wasn't his focus, that's for sure. But the scholastics brought out some of those some of those important points. The thing that I think is important to see in Doctrine of God, and I've recognized this you know, over the past few years, is that much of what we understand with respect to God's essential character is there by good and necessary consequence. That is, you're not going to be able to go easily to one or two or three passages and say, this is a definitive proof of immutability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you can, put, you can do your exegesis, and the Scholastics did that, but once once you affirm the aseity, once you see the aseity, as you do, I think, in, in Scripture, in Exodus 3, and then in, in the fact that the Lord names himself, I am, that's a, that's, that's a, a reference to the aseity. So Yahweh itself, as Calvin says, every time you read that name, you're meant to think about the majesty and greatness mm-hmm. of God's character at that point. And it's used over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. Once you think of aseity, then everything else... Um, that you uh, ascribe to God's essential character can flow from that, is entailed by that. And I think that's an important point to see. So when we talk about God being immutable, we're not saying that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit had no fellowship with each other or interaction with each other or communication, whatever that is within the Godhead. Of course they did. Immutability means that God never changes into something else. He remains who he is, but even as who he is, he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and everything that he does is God. Mm-hmm. It just is God. So whatever that is, we have no idea. It doesn't mean a, a kind of static uh, monism no, or parmenidean. No. But it's a blob. constant That's a thing con- where there's no 
is very opposed to like a Wolfhart Pannenberg, for instance, yeah. where God evolves and unfolds himself and perhaps even becomes a trinity in history. Yeah. Which is this, yeah. the absolute right. polar mm-hmm. opposite of, mm-hmm. of what we're seeing. Yeah. And a lot of those errors are from taking a bottom-up approach that we observe constant yeah. whatever, you know, yeah. in creation. We observe yeah. stasis in creation or change in creation and think, oh, well, God's got to be the same well, way. Like to Heraclitus and Parmenides again. Well, that's <laughs> right. And see, and, you know, to put it in a, philo- in a theological um, context, I think one of the reasons why Thomas's notion of simplicity as as much good as there is in it, I think one of the reasons that it has trouble with things like Trinity and with things like theological predication, which which can be shown, I think, is because it's a product of natural theology. Now, it's a product mm-hmm. of natural theology that imports stuff that eventually is, is biblic, biblical and biblically solid, but um, as a product of natural theology, it's when philosophers critique it, they can see the kind of philosophical Parmenidean simplicity rather than a, a, a biblically infused mm-hmm. Father, Son, Holy Spirit who is one and without parts sort of thing. And that, yeah. that's a huge difference, I think. Yeah, Dr. Oliphant, can you speak a little bit more towards the distinction between what you're working on as far as covenantal condescension and uh, some of the you know, Reformed and even scholastic um, postures that begin to view God only in in two strict categories of either just totally off say and then you have Jesus and and anytime the Lord reveals himself in creation it's just like a pillar mm-hmm. you know it doesn't and then all the phenomenology that we see in, in scripture is just like walking around the pillar. Can you fill yeah. that out as far as the distinction? Yeah, that's Thomas's metaphor, and, and I think that's the way. I think that's the way. It's hard for me to say most. I'll say that most of the folks that I have read uh, that are trying to deal with these issues try to map um, what's happening in scripture and what uh, map descriptions of God in scripture onto His essential character. Mm-hmm. And a kind of just jumping and saying, this can't be what what this passage means because the Ase God can't be doing this sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and I think that that becomes the problem. So there, there's almost a kind of um, – I, I think there's a kind of – how should I say it? There's It's not blindness so much as it, as it is – let me put it positively. They're trying to protect a seity. And in order to do that, I think they so twist um, much of what Scripture says that they miss the reality that that condescension has been taking place really since the eternal decree, mm-hmm. and that that condescension is what God determined to do, I think, by way of his Son, the second person of the Trinity, from the beginning, not just at the point of the incarnation. The incarnation mm. is the climax of it, mm. but it's prepared for from the time of the decree and then at the point of creation when God speaks things into existence and the Word is there himself, uh, John 1.1 1, 1 is telling us, and the Spirit is there. And so there's Christ, or the, the Son of God, condescending, Christ proleptically condescending from that point on. So the bridge is built at the beginning. And when you begin to see that, then... If, if what that means is God taking on characteristics that he didn't have previously, then everything else that Scripture says about him makes much more sense and to me has, has a gospel focus that you don't get otherwise. Mm. I mean, I, I try to tell my class, what does it mean that God is fighting with Israel against his enemies? Right. What does that mean that God is fighting with Israel against his if you were to think about that carefully, you'd say, well, what it means is he, he can't defeat his enemies without Israel. He needs Israel. And he's got to be patient to destroy evil because it's going to be a long process. And in other words, when you begin to think about that carefully, what you see is the condescension of God means that he really is interacting on a horizontal level. He could snap his fingers, which he doesn't even have. He could snap his fingers <laughs> and wipe out everything if he wanted to. In other words, there's no reason How many for God. fingers does he have? And <laughs> there's no reason for him to interact in this way except yeah. that he's condescended. He's become the divine warrior. He says, I will go with you. I will fight with you. We will do this in this way. And all through Scripture, we see God working in stages patiently. I mean, look at what he did with Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Why all the plagues? Why not just, boom, you're dead. People are gone. He's showing something of his character and the reality of redemption 
by virtue of his condescension, yeah. even while he interacts in this way. And if you miss that, I mean, I, I can't, I should have looked this up, but there's the, um, there's a situation in Genesis 22 where God's testing Abraham, and um, Abraham passes the test, and God says, now I know that you're, that you are faithful. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, I believe it's Turton, so I shouldn't say this publicly. It may not be. But one of the Reformed writers says, what this means is now Abraham knows. Oh. Now, see, you, can't, you mm-hmm. cannot interpret it that way. But what he's trying to say is, well, God already knew. Well, of course he already knew. But the now I know is covenantal now mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. He, he, he has exhaustive knowledge, but he's going through, he's working this out. So that covenantally, he can say, look, now, covenantally, we together, look what you have done. I know mm-hmm. this, and you know this. The same way with, with Nineveh and things like that. So you, you see God relenting and repenting. He really is doing that, but not because he didn't know beforehand he did, not because he doesn't have a that it changed his decree in any way. Nothing right? has yeah. changed. That's right. Secondary There's still the causes. decree. So, and then you can take that all the way to, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm. where Jesus says, if there's any other way, he's praying and he's sweating as drops of blood mm-hmm. and he's not faking it out and he's not saying, I'm just going to do this because mm-hmm. you know, I have to pray. Yeah, He really mm-hmm. is praying and yet he decreed that he would go to the cross. There's mm-hmm. no wink there. Like, uh, That's just right. Kidding. It's, it's the reality in the mind of Christ, the reality of contingency was just as real as the necessity of his decree and mm-hmm. there was no conflict in his mind. He was not just willy-nilly going along. And I think that's what we've got to begin to, to mm. see. If We've got to see reality as incarnational in that sense. God condescending, taking on properties without ever changing, and all of this working out so that the gospel's there from the very beginning. In that sense, in that mm-hmm. sense. I'm not into pre and post. I'm not talking about that yeah. lapsarian. But his condescension is there from the very beginning. And so mm. you see God interacting with, with uh, creation. From I, th- I think what's interesting about this is that it's a doctrine of God that has um, a robust view of exegesis that makes sense of eschatology. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, got a, it's a doctrine of God that has room for a proper biblical eschatology as opposed to uh, just something like theosis, where eschatology is just being sucked up into you know, mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Yeah. And instead, you know, as Peter says, right, Second Peter, um, we partake in yeah, divine wonderful. nature— mm-hmm. It's it's not like and now we're going to become God, right? But it's talking about a covenantal, right? A condescension as far yeah, as and, and perfection, the, the, right? In the sense of Jesus Christ and His imperishable glory, yeah. which is divine. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that um, help help me in all of this, and I I did did this on purpose, is that I had the opportunity to teach this in a couple of Sunday school classes in churches because, in my view, if this didn't going to fly in the church, then it's you know it's there's there's something de- you know desperately wrong with it. And the, and just what you said about you know having biblical roots and foundation, this people do get this in in the pews, and they begin to understand how to make sense of. Now, make sense of doesn't mean there's no mystery. It means the mystery is intense, but you get what God is doing mm. in these situations in a way that you didn't otherwise, because now you have, if I could put it sort of crassly, now you have the filter of the incarnation that says this is what God was meant to be doing anyway, and He's showing us that he does this all the way through covenant history and climaxing in Jesus Christ, that he condescends and he interacts really and truly with us. And so now we can think about things like predestination. What is predestination? It's God's decree to determine to save a people that in no way undermines or wipes out any of the contingencies that take place in the world. Mm. He's not the author of sin. He doesn't violate our wills where the secondary causality is established, all that the confession talks about, how can any of that contingency be the case if the necessity of the decree is what it is? Mm. Because in Christ, God brings together into one contingency of Christ's human nature and the necessity of his deity and brings those into one, makes those compatible, harmonious. How does he do it? I don't know. But he does it, and he's able to do it because now it's the infinite God working with finite creation. Mm-hmm. And people in the churches get this, and I think that's one of the things um, that's, that's encouraging because it's not speculative. It's not only philosophical. You can express it in philosophical category, but it's deeply biblical, and I think it's deeply rooted in, in God's um, gospel purpose. Mm-hmm. I like this because some, uh, Van Til said um, God had to create the nothing, you know, it, Ex nihilo. It's like we had to create the 
nothing because right. we just think totally in spatial categories or totally chronological categories. That's right. Um, there was no nothing prior to God's creation. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about kind of um, some abstract theological concepts, and then you mentioned just the pew. I think, you know, this is also crucially important for evangelistic purposes because what you're communicating as far as the good news goes, the God that you present has got to be a, a scriptural God. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're communicating, there's, what, what are the surveys, you know, 90% of people believe in God or whatever it is, but it's not this kind of God. It's an anemic God. It's a different God. And so the way that you communicate these types of things have, and Christology as well, obviously, how those two things relate. So, yeah. um, I mean, it, it's not just for our circles. This is crucial for the gospel and evangelism as oh, well. Oh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely right. And you see it in the ministry of Jesus, you know, in, in uh, Matthew 11, when he says, I, thank you, Father, that you've revealed these things, you know, not to the wise, but to babe. And then after the, this, this establishment of his sovereignty, right after that, come to me, all you who are weary. Yeah. In other words, mm-hmm. he, Jesus, there's no conflict in his mind. He's not going, boy, I wish this decree thing was more intelligible <laughs> so I really uh, know if this is a sincere offer. Hit just right into the offer uh, because the, the, the foundation of it is, is God's decree. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Reformed have always said. The foundation of our offer of the gospel is that God has chosen and it will be effectual. Mm-hmm. But we haven't been very good at articulating how, you know, that that comes together by virtue of God's own activity. and You see that in the ministry of Christ. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, it's been really, truly a very substantive and, and uh, just fascinating discussion. Uh, we got a call of quits, unfortunately, but of course, we have you scheduled for episode 300. All right. And so, <laughs> I'll see so what, we'll, what books But hopefully we'll have you back uh, much sooner than two years from now. Uh, but uh, in terms of links and uh, promos and things like that, um, I guess I can sum it all up under one umbrella here for the people that I have with me. You can visit wts.edu to, to uh, check Westminster out online. Uh, and you can you can contact the missions department. Or, uh, you can uh you can get a whole number of, of contact options on the website as well. Of course, the iTunes U webpage uh, for Westminster is another place to go, and there you'll find, among other things, uh, Dr. Oliphant's Doctrine of God class. Of course, Reformed Forum is available at reformedforum.org, and there you'll find information about all of our programs and all of our other websites and how to get in touch with us if you need. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>